a seat. It's uh, really, really good to see some of you here, and we want to welcome those of you online, and then certainly at uh, Cactus Northridge Chapel and Venue. Uh, you know, it's our second week of having a, a very limited uh, capacity uh, worship time together with many of you. And my wife, you got to laugh at this, she asked me last week, because we started this last week, you know, how was it? Uh, on Saturday night when I came home. And I said, it kind of reminded me of the early days of church for me, because I've been doing this about 30 years. Back in the early days when Neil and I were pastoring in Canada, it was a much smaller church. It was not filled uh, because of just the nature of our environment. And so I was used to half-filled worship centers. In fact, I'd, I'd get there on Sunday morning, and I'd be the, the first one in the parking lot. So empty parking lot, pastor driving in, and I'd sit there for a few minutes in my car and I would just pray, oh God, please bring somebody to church today. And so you're an answer to prayer. It's great to have you here today. And uh, again, we know so many are watching online and, and I get that. And, uh, you know, we, it's our set in our my story. God's got this and we're going to get through this and we continue to appreciate your prayers. Now, we're going to have an amazing time in the Word today as we continue through one of my favorite Old Testament books, the book of Jonah. And, and honestly, it's going to be a really insightful time as we talk about how to turn back to God, which is such an important thing when we've strayed from Him. But before I get to that, I'm going to make some comments about what's going on around us. You know, I'm a processor, as many of you know. I've been your pastor for almost 13 years now, and I even wrote a chapter about this in my book, How Joyful People Think, that God's leaders should never be reactionary, but to be very thoughtful and, and process-oriented people that, that speak once they've uh, gotten clarity from him. And so, you know, that disappoints some people that I don't speak quicker about things going on around us, but you'll hear why in a second here. I, I don't respond to culture, I respond to God and I respond to you. But now that I've been thinking and praying a lot about what's going on and, and, and such, I do have some words that I want to share with you. So first, a scripture that will bounce us into this and kind of posture the words that I want to share with you. The, the scripture I've been meditating on lately, I think is so relevant for you and I right now, and it's Philippians 2.15, and it says, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear or shine as lights in the world. So here's the deal, gang. When it comes to the culture and world around us, you and I cannot always control or determine how or what they will do. Have you found that yet? In other words, even as Americans, evangelical American Christians, we have a lot less control on the culture and world around us than we many times think we do. We're coming up on 50 years of Roe versus Wade 60 million babies have lost their lives, and we have been unable to overturn that in our nation. Just three or four years ago, uh, the Supreme Court reversed the Arizona Constitution that we voted on when it comes to a definition of marriage that has given a seismic shock to our nation's understanding of marriage. Just two examples that should reveal to us that we don't have the control in a secular culture that we think we do. We live in a fallen world in which without Jesus, now don't miss this, people are incapable of doing the things that God wants them to do. That's why the gospel is so critical. 
The Bible is really clear. Read Ephesians 2. That before you come to know Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins without God and without hope in the world. That's the Bible's language. But here's the flip side to this. And this is the good news. Though we can't control culture or even change culture, we can control, determine, and change us, the church. In other words, we can determine what we, the church, believe and what we, the church, do clearly. So go back to the scripture. This fallen world is a crooked and perverse generation, but you and I are given the opportunity to be blameless and innocent children of God. What a contrast. So though we can't control culture, we can control the church, you and I. And so maybe now you can understand, maybe now it makes sense to you why I as your pastor do not speak all that often to the culture around us when it comes to morality and lifestyle. In other words, whenever I have a chance to speak to the culture around us, I do what Paul the Apostle did. I do what Jesus did. I talk about the things of God and the gospel because they can't change without bending the knee to Jesus and having the Holy Spirit inside of them. So it's fascinating. When you look at Paul when he was before Agrippa or Paul when he was before Felix or Jesus when he was before Pilate, they didn't say to them, hey, you know, I was thinking about some of the inequities in the Greco-Roman system and I'd like to talk to you about those. No, they said to them, let me tell you how you can find God and how you can come to Jesus. Or Jesus said, let me tell you, you can find truth, Pilate, so that you might hope to actually change someday. That's what the biblical players did, and that's what I do. I don't give public service announcements to our culture very often, but here's what I do do. I do speak to you all the time because why? You and I have a calling and an opportunity to be the beautiful and set apart bride of Jesus Christ. We're in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. We can be blameless and innocent children of God. That's what the church is about. So I'm gonna share with you right now a couple of things that I've been thinking of lately as you and I watch all the things going on around us like racism, protests, riots, calls to defund the police, and all the rest. I wanna say two things to you, the church, to us as we gather together both online as well as here in our other campuses and venues. The first thing I wanna share with you, and I hope you're already solid on this, but we're gonna turn up the heat on this, is that God's people abhor racism in any form and there is no place for it in his church, amen? God's people abhor racism in any form and, and, and there's no place for it in our church. And I don't need, hopefully, to give you a strong polemic or argument for that. Max Licato, the wonderful pastor and writer, wrote an op-ed recently in which he said it was so beautiful. He said, this thing is settled in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 27, and God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created him, and he called it very good. So God has created all human beings in his image. We are all loved by him on equal footing and he expects us to treat each other like that. Uh, James 3.9 says it very clearly as a challenge. It says that you bless God and you curse men. This ought not to be because these men that you curse have been made in the likeness of God. 
And as soon as I say this, that racism has no place in God's church, there's some who are tempted to say, yeah, but we really don't have a problem with that, do we? (laughs) Yeah, more than we might think. Since this has been going on in culture, I've been interacting with some of our African-American people in our church and then other people of color. And here's what you guys need to know. They do feel this from us at times, if not many times. They do feel different and even judged by us. Comments made, the way that we approach them. In other words, there is need for us, even as Scottsdale Bible Church, to address this topic and to not be defensive. We don't have to be like the world, but to want to be innocent and blameless and make sure that we're the kind of church in which everybody feels welcome here, safe here, and a part of the community here, no matter what they might experience out there. And so we're going to be meeting more and more with many people of color at our church, especially in this stage, African-American folks and couples, and we're going to be listening to them, and we're going to be taking a long-term strategy or plan for how we can become even more innocent and blameless as a church. It's a good time for us to do this. But we're not doing it because culture is jerking our chain. Please understand that. We're not doing it because it might be something our culture's focused on. We're doing it because this is the right thing for us. You and I don't need to be woke to this. We've already read the Bible. And this is something we need to always be addressing and doing. And we're going to take this time in the next few weeks and months to do that. Now, I want to share with you something else. I told you there are two challenges in light of what's going on. And I will just warn you right now, the second challenge is not usually heard in light of the first, because again, our culture is kind of nuts. Uh, But if God's people abhor racism in any form, here's the second thing that we need to understand, and that's that God's people support those placed in authority to protect us. Let me repeat that. God's people support those who are placed in authority to protect us. Again, if you don't believe me, meditate later on these words out of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, let every person, meaning every Christian, be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, those who resist authority have opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed those uh, that God has set in place. And then it goes on for three more verses to talk even more about this. And again, we're not saying that there can't be abuse in authority structures. Of course there can, and we have seen that in our culture. But what God's people do is that we don't then resist everything. We call out abuse. We say, let's see some reform there. But for the good ones who are still in authority, and we have them in our church, men and women who are in law enforcement and love God and they love all people, we support those whom God has placed in authority to protect us. In other words, we have a balanced approach here in this. This is what I've been thinking about a lot lately. And though our world can't hear this right now, hopefully with the word of God as our guide, you and I can. That we can abhor racism, love all people on the one hand, and yet promote justice and root out injustice when we see it on the other Love and justice are two sides of the coin that God has given us that he is about and he wants us to be about it as well. So again, I'm not sending this to the Arizona Republic. Do you all understand that? Because this isn't a public service announcement to our culture. This is in-house stuff for you and me, all of us, 
as we continue on as a church. Our elders have stacked hands on this. Our pastors have stacked hands on this. Our leaders are as well. And I encourage you biblically to join us in this. So I want to get on right now to talk to you about Jonah. But before I do, I would ask you all, as I did last week, to join me in a little bit of an extended prayer as we pray, not just for the things around us, but for us as the body of Christ in these very, very difficult, tenuous times. So let's all bow together and go to the word and prayer. Father God, I do thank you that you have not left us alone to wonder about things of truth or about the nature of culture and the church and reality, but you've shown us things, these things in your word. And I, I thank you, God, that you have given us as redeemed ones in Jesus the opportunity to be innocent and blameless, though we're very far from that, You've given us the opportunity to, to move toward that even as culture gets more crazy. And Father, I, I pray that as we ruminate on these two things that come so clearly from you, that, that racism has no place in your body, it has no place in your church, that as Larry Crabb says, this should be the safest place on earth. God, help us to be non-defensive and honest as a body of Christ and, and to recognize where we have failed at that and to repent and to seek apology and seek amends and move on, Lord, more toward wholeness. Be with those who are hurting God and may they feel love and empathy from us and even action. And Lord, I do pray too for those in our church that are involved in protecting us in our culture around us. God, I pray that as many of them are hurting, confused and wondering what is going on, that Lord, you would give them wisdom as well and know that we support them and love them as well as they try to root out bad character in those systems, but also, Lord, continue to uplift the good that many of them have been about. Father, we want to move on in love and justice, and we thank you that we have the opportunity to do so as reasonable, faithful followers of you. I pray, Father, as we now talk about something that's dear to my heart, this idea of what it means when we stray from you and what you do and how we can turn back to you. God, help us to be men and women who are honest about our spiritual lives and not afraid to turn toward you now as we're gonna learn how to do that. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. Well, we're just about halfway through a five-series or five-week look at the book of Jonah that I've entitled Running from God. And if you missed the last two weeks, I'm going to save you right now. You don't even have to listen to the messages. Here would be a great recap of chapter one that we spent two weeks in of Jonah. And there's three movements. The word of the Lord came, Jonah ran, and God chased. Is that good enough for you? <laughs> the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh. <clears throat> and Jonah said, I don't think so. And he ran the other way. And as we saw last week, God chased after Jonah. And we simply likened this to our lives today, that many, if not most of us, have come to the Lord, and we're doing our best to walk with him. The word of the Lord has come to us, but there are times when we are honest that we run from him, we run from his call, we turn our back on him, and God, in his amazing grace, chases after us. This is a very relevant series for you and me. There's a little bit of Jonah in every one of us. And so we left off last week with Jonah having been thrown into the raging sea and swallowed by a large fish that God had sent his way. God is chasing Jonah and God wants more than anything for Jonah, watch this, to turn and face him. But it's easier said than done. 
The question before us that Jonah chapter 2 is going to show us the answer to is how do we turn to God when he is chasing us, especially when we're confused and angry and hurting and, and feel that perceived distance? That's the question. And Jonah is going to show us how. Three things I want to share with you in our time remaining today. We've got about 25 minutes. Three things that Jonah shares with us about how to turn and face God when we have run from him or turned our back on him. And the first thing is simply this. That we turn when we get to the end of our human limitations. Did you know that? We turn when we get to the end of our rope. And some of you are getting very close to that right now. Jonah shows us this, that you and I as human beings have a propensity to run from God, but the further you run or the more that you run, the worse it's going to get. And when it gets bad enough, there's a really good chance you're going to get to the end of your rope and turn. Look at how Jonah shows us this. Look at verse three. He starts off by saying in his prayer to God, basically chapter two is all one big long prayer to God. He says, for you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. So this is simply talking about how when they were on the ship and the sailors were afraid of the stormy sea and knew it was God that was in the sea, threw Jonah overboard in hopes to get God to stop the storms and the waves. And as Jonah got thrown overboard, he what? Started to drown. That's the imagery here. He was cast into the seas, he was starting to drown, and it gets worse. Look at verses five and six. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Some of you can relate to this. The imagery here is not just of drowning, but he is now sinking to the bottom of the ocean where the weeds are starting to surround him. Did you catch the prison imagery when he says the bars are closing in on me? Some of you can relate to that. Jonah is getting to the absolute end of his rope here. He's getting to the end of himself. He's completely trapped and helpless. And so on a psychological, spiritual level, try to grasp what's happening inside Jonah in this moment. Up until he was thrown into the ocean, he felt that he was fairly sufficient apart from God and running from God, right? That's how we feel when we're running from God. And so as we're tracking this story, Jonah could run from Jerusalem to Joppa on his own. And he could find a boat to get away from God on his own. And he could even deal with the panicky sailors, as we saw last week, on his own. But alone in the raging sea, and now it's a different story. He gets to the end of his limitations. In fact, as he says in verse 2, he says, I called out to God out of the belly of Sheol. Some of you are going, what's Sheol? Sheol is the closest thing you're going to find in the Old Testament to hell. It means the underworld, the dark place that you go to after you die. And Jonah says that as I was in those raging waters and in the belly of the whale, I felt it was death all around me. And so don't miss the point here because we're going to accelerate in just a minute. Jonah has reached his limitations. He was at the end of what he realized he could do in his own strength. And he's just about ready to call for some outside help. And folks, this is the first step toward running back to God. 
This is the difference between what I've taught you before, what I call the difference between woundedness and brokenness. See, everybody on planet Earth is wounded, right? Like even in Scottsdale, the land of the pretty, we try to, you know, make it look like everything is so good and well in our lives. But everybody in Scottsdale is wounded, Everybody's got some sort of limp that they have in life, whether it's a painful childhood or the loss of a loved one or job dissatisfaction or a marital breakdown or a relational breakdown or doubt or disappointment, profound loneliness, racism as we see now. It's part of living in a fallen and imperfect world. We carry around wounds with us. Everybody does on planet Earth. But here's the difference. Not everybody is broken. Not everybody gets to a point in their woundedness where they cry out to God for help. Only the broken do that. You see, brokenness is a point where people get to in their woundedness, and this is exactly where Jonah is, where they realize that their devices that they have used to make life work don't work anymore. Brokenness is a breaking point in humility where a person says, I'm tough. In fact, I'm tougher than most people around me. But even I have my limitations. Even I have a point where I can't take it anymore. And that's where Jonah is. Uh, Brokenness is a realization in your woundedness how finite you are. And it causes you to look to the infinite, to God. In short, brokenness is running headlong into your limitations. And it's the first step to how we turn back to God. You got to go from woundedness into brokenness. And you know, it's kind of funny. Whenever I talk about woundedness and brokenness, because it's so been my experience that led me to Jesus, I never get any emails thanking me for that discussion. Isn't that interesting? In other words, nobody ever emails me, which they should, saying, man, that's a really good distinction. Thank you for teaching us the Bible that way. And the reason is, is because nobody likes to talk about this, right? Like nobody likes to talk about woundedness and brokenness and life getting really difficult and da 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 but, but maybe this will take the edge off of it for you. And that is that the sad reality is, and we see this in Jonah, now, now don't miss this, is that most people experience brokenness out of crisis. Have you ever noticed that? In other words, everybody's wounded, but then they resist God in their woundedness And so crisis hits, the whale swallows us and we're in its belly. And then in that crisis, we get broken and call out to God. That's how most people function. That's how we function as a church. I mean, we do a lot of pastoral counseling here and most people come to us in crisis, continue to do that. But the marriage failed, the kids went off the deep end, you're anxious and depressed, you have spiritual doubts, the job stinks. I mean, it's a fallen world as we've established And crisis hits, and in that crisis, God is there because he loves you and he's chasing you. And in that crisis, we help you go from woundedness to brokenness and humility, and in that, you turn back to God. But here's what you might want to understand, and this might be worth the price of admission today. And that is that when you think about it, all brokenness really is, is an awareness of your need for God, an awareness of your woundedness and you don't need to get to crisis point to have that awareness, amen? You don't. Uh, Two of my favorite historical characters here are C.S. Lewis and Charles Colson or Chuck Colson. They're both dead now. 
Uh, both Christians. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a famous professor at Oxford and then Cambridge and a very prolific author. And Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's right-hand man during the Watergate scandal. And both of them went on to be wonderful Christian leaders, but their pathway toward turning to God was very, very different, even though they both experienced brokenness. Uh, Lewis never had any crises And Lewis simply intellectually admitted that God is real, that he's involved in this earth, that Jesus is his son, that Jesus atoned for our sins. And in that intellectual understanding, Lewis says, I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God because I knew it was true and needed to submit my will to him. But there is no marital breakdown, no emotional struggle, things like that. It was simply him having an awareness of who God is and who he is as a human being, humble and wounded, and then turning to God. Colson, on the other hand, took a much more difficult route. Colson writes in his autobiography that he was such a bad person, he would have sold his mother for a dollar. He was Nick, Richard Nixon's henchman. And during the Watergate scandal, Colson got uh, arrested, convicted, tried, and sent to prison. And being in prison, he had this, this profound jailhouse conversion to Jesus when he hit rock bottom. And nobody believed it at the time. But when he came out of prison, it was real. And he was a broken man who had now turned to Jesus and went on to to start Prison Fellowship, a wonderful uh, ministry to prisoners. And and he became a culture watcher watcher and spoke boldly to culture around us and a, a great Christian statesman. But I love those two stories because they exemplify for us. Now watch this, the easy way and the hard way to brokenness. You see, the easy way is to wake up like I try to do every day and don't read your own press releases, amen? You don't sit there and say, I'm a bigwig pastor of a bigwig church. I don't think that way. I wake up every day, I really do, and and, and I look to God and I say, thank you for saving my pathetic soul, Lord, and use me today any way that you can. And I remember who I am and what I'm made of. And in that awareness, I go from woundedness to brokenness, hopefully each and every day. But there's times, and I do this too, where I dig my heels in and I turn from God and I cop an attitude and I get angry. And when I do that, I'm telling you, it might take crisis to get me to turn to him. And this is what Jonah shows us, that all of us need to get to the end of our limitations. And there's an easy way or a hard way. Which way is it going to be for you are you going to choose the easy path to realize who you who you are what you're made of that you're a sinner before God and that you need him more than you desperately even know or are you going to dig your heels in and run either way I pray he's going to get you because he loves you and he chases after you but for most of us until we get to the end of our limitations we're never going to turn now we haven't turned yet we're still running We're simply now aware of our need for him. And so notice a second step that Jonah gives us. And this one we're going to apply here in just a few minutes when we wrap up. And that is that Jonah shows us that we turn when we choose to call out to God. That we turn when we choose to call out to God. 
So notice with me, this is fascinating in the text, what Jonah does once he realizes his own devices are not going to work anymore now that the raging sea is upon them and the great fish is after him. Look at what he says in his prayer here. We're going to string together some verses, verses 1 and 2, 4 and 7 and 8, because I need you to see in kind of a staccato format uh, the words Jonah uses. He, it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the great fish. He said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then he wraps up saying, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I like how the New International Version says it. I think it says those who pay regard to vain idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's obvious what's happening here. Don't miss this. He prays, he calls out, he cries, his voice goes out, he says something, and then he prays again. This man is calling out to God like a lot. And notice that it was a choice that Jonah made. How do we know it was a choice? Because the belly of the whale is not an opportune time for a prayer meeting, amen? So he chose in his crisis to call out to God. And there's something in that for you and me. That when we turn to God, and we're gonna do this in just a minute, it's worth noting that God wants us to say something, amen? He wants us to call out, to cry out to him, to have some sort of prayer, some sort of confession, at least saying, I'm here. And again, some of you are going, well, Jamie, that sounds so obvious. Yeah, but Christians are wily. Have you ever noticed this? I I mean, how many times am I in my office and two people come in in marital breakdown and and usually it's the husband and and the wife is all upset. I'm not trying to be sexist, but that's many times how it is. It can be reversed. Uh, But the wife is all upset and and I'll say, what's your complaint? And and she'll say, he never talks to me anymore. He doesn't say anything anymore. Communication is shut down. And I'm telling you, it's a death blow right there when the husband looks back and says, but you know how I feel. No, she doesn't, because you haven't said anything in a long time. And could it be that God is the same way? See, we want to say, well, God knows what's in our heart. Well, duh, of course he does. He's God. But you know, he likes to hear it, too. Why do you think Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety upon him, all of it, because he cares for you. So when you are turning back to God, he wants to hear something from you. You don't just turn and are quiet. You turn and like Jonah, you pray, you call out, you cry, your voice is heard. You say something, you pray. It's all over the place here. I'm gonna lead you in a very beautiful prayer in just a minute that you can pray to God on a regular basis as you turn. So add it up. You get to the end of your limitations and now you're ready to turn. And then you call out to God. And then lastly, and we're going to spend just a few minutes on this before we put all this together, we turn when we come to God through Jesus Christ. (laughs) Kathy Wilson, you're going to love this. Right now, I know how some of you think. You're thinking to me, Jamie, that's not in the text. I mean, this is Old Testament stuff. Why are you bringing Jesus into it? You just have to do that, don't you? Well, actually, it's there when you look closely. 
Uh, Look at how Jonah will pray here in his final words of his prayer. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now here it is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And with that prayer, it says, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so this chapter ends with Jonah being saved. He's now back on dry land and he's ready to go on into chapter three, which we're gonna do next week. And again, some of you are saying, but Jamie, again, you said there was Jesus in here. I don't see Jesus in here at all, but actually he is. And here's why. Jonah was written in about 780, or it occurred in 780 BC. It was written shortly after that. So almost 800 years before the time of Jesus. But what's fascinating is that when Jesus showed up on the scene, again, some 800 years later, Jesus, on three occasions, would mention the story of Jonah. And in so doing, watch this, he would actually use the story of Jonah to talk about how we need to turn toward God as Jonah turned toward God. And yet Jesus will add one thing to it that concerned him. Let me show you. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And yet behold, something greater than Jonah is right in front of you, is right here, meaning Jesus. Folks, Jesus is using what he calls here the sign of Jonah. Jesus would refer to it as that. And when you look closely here, there's both an analogy and a prophecy going on. There's an analogy between Jonah and Jesus, as well as a prophecy through Jonah of what would happen in Jesus. And don't miss some of the links going on here between Jonah and Jesus. In both, there is an instrument of redemption In Jonah, the instrument of redemption is the whale. And for us, our instrument of redemption is Jesus. In both, you have God's will being executed, God's will for Jonah, God's will for us in Jesus. And in both, you have his grace. In Jonah's story, we have God preserving Jonah in Sheol. We already saw that. And in Jesus' account, we have God preserving Jesus in death Three days and three nights in both cases, kind of eerie. And then both are ejected out of their three-night stay, one in the whale, one in the grave, because death could neither kill nor digest Jonah or Jesus. When you add it all up, Bible scholars call this fancy language for a very profound concept, a deliverance motif going on here. It's a deliverance theme. Simply put, that just as God delivered Jonah, and that Jonah had to turn to God to experience that deliverance, Jesus came to deliver us. And that we need to turn to Jesus to have the eternal deliverance that our souls desire. That's why I say, the right reading of the book of Jonah is to realize that you get to the end of your limitations, that you then call out to God, but make sure you're calling out to the right person, and that is Jesus, 
because as he himself says, something greater than Jonah is now here. Isn't that amazing? And so as you and I call out to God, we don't have to call out blindly to God or like the sailors on the ship, call out to the God of our understanding. No, 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 no. We call out to Jesus, who is our friend, our savior, the second person of the Trinity, the only one who can secure for us a place in heaven based on his death on a cross and his resurrection for us. So let me ask you one last time today. Are you running from God in any way at this time in your life? Are you? Are you running from God at all? Because if you are, I got good news for you. He's been running after you. (laughs) He's chasing you like the hound of heaven that he is. And when you finally get sick and tired of running, either through crisis or through your own choice, there is a way back to him. You recognize the end of your human limitations. You choose to call out to him And you call out to him through faith and trust in a savior. And he has a name. It's Jesus. So here's what we're going to do before I bring the campus pastors up in each of our settings here to to close our time together. I promise you I'm going to give you a chance to turn and to pray. And we're going to do it a little bit differently today than we have historically. Uh, What we're going to do is I'm going to lead you in a more formal, very short, but very beautiful prayer that I learned over the last few months in my own prayer time. It's called the Jesus Prayer. The Jesus Prayer comes from two places in the New Testament. You might remember both stories. One story was when Jesus was walking by two blind men and they cried out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus turned and healed them. Son of David, have mercy on us. And then the second story is that famous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican. And the Pharisee is bragging about how he's better than most people. And the publican, the tax collector, is beating his chest and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so put those two stories together. And the Jesus prayer is a beautiful prayer we can pray all the time that goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me repeat that. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the gospel in a nutshell. If you say those words, you're confessing that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of the universe, the preexistent one, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And you're submitting in that moment his lordship. Don't call him Lord unless you mean it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And then you're saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're confessing that you are an unworthy sinner in his presence, that you need grace, that you need him, and you're ready to turn back to him, and you ask for his mercy. And the beautiful thing about the atonement Jesus' shed blood for you is that he's more than willing to give you his mercy time and time again. And so I've actually been praying this prayer in my regular quiet time lately and some other prayers that I have developed myself or learned like this one uh, that I'm praying on a regular basis. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've even been praying that for lost ones around me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on so-and-so a sinner. And so I'm gonna invite you to pray that prayer with me right now. 
So there's three of you that might wanna pray that prayer. We're gonna bow our heads and, and, and pray it in just a second here. Uh, those of you who are already saved and aren't running from God, like me right now, I'm not running from him right now, I, I want you to pray that prayer because you can pray that prayer all the time because it's the gospel that you're praying. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Wonderful way to start your day. There's those of you, secondly, who are ready to turn to him. You've been running from him. You wanna turn to him either for the first time or maybe as a Christian who's been straying. And today he wants to hear from you. He wants you to call out to him, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That'll do it. That'll start to reconnect you with him. And then maybe there's some of you who aren't ready to turn yet, but you gotta memorize this prayer for when you are ready. And so let's have you say it with us today too. So every head bowed, those of you at home and then Cactus, Venue, Chapel, Northridge, all of us, every head bowed in this place. And if you can, let's go to God in prayer. And I'd just like you to repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, receive our hearts and receive our prayer. We love you, we know you, we trust you. Have mercy on us. May your spirit rise up within us and fill us. Set us apart, use us for your purposes, not just as sinners, but as saints, innocent and blameless, children of God above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation where we appear as lights in a dark world. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen.